Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And for the prayer, if you can repeat it with me, please. Lord Jesus, master of both light and darkness, send your Holy Spirit upon our preparation for Christmas. We who have so much to do, seek quiet places to hear your voice each day. We who are anxious over many things, look forward to your coming among us. We who are blessed in so many ways, long for the complete joy of your kingdom. We whose heart are heavy, seek the joy of your presence. We are your people, walking in darkness, yet seeking the light. To you we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. And kids, you can go back to uh, your rooms. Good morning. Uh, my name is John Fouché, and this happened to me yesterday. I lost my voice, and so we're about to have a lot of fun. We're about to have a lot of fun. Um, the, um, this morning, as we reflect upon Isaiah 9, that was the passage that was just read a moment ago, it is one of the most famous prophecies about the coming of Jesus. And there were four titles there in the Isaiah 9, talking about the coming Christ, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Which one of those stand out to you? Uh, It may be everlasting father because we actually normally do not talk about Jesus as a father. He was like a father to us. To me, it's the word peace. And today we're going to talk about peace in our Advent series. We're doing um, a study of four different uh, um, words. Of, you'll see on the banners here, peace, hope, joy, and love uh, during Advent. And peace is the word we're going to study today. It says here that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He says, and of his peace there will be no end. Uh, in the Old Testament... What's the Hebrew word that is often described to use of peace? Shalom, all right? It's where we get our word Salem, like the Salem witch trials, oddly enough, or Winston-Salem. The old city Salem was was named after the Hebrew word of peace. Uh, In the Bible, Shalom means more than just ceasefire among enemies. It means this wholeness, 
this, um, this flourishing in everything. It's the way things ought to be. Uh, you can follow many stories of the Bible, and it's a quest for peace. That's the story of the Bible, is a quest for peace. And even the stories of the individual characters, like David, you can watch their struggle as they're going for peace. Many of David's military battles were with the Philistines, and David was a Jew. Goliath was a Philistine. Interestingly enough, if you know your geography today, that is present-day Israel, politically, and the Gaza Strip. That's where the, Philist the Philistines were located, were the five cities, which are now all in the Gaza Strip. And the way this quest for peace has never fully ended. In this sense, this uh, Israel and Hamas war is a recurring struggle internationally. But, uh, and we certainly need Christ to bring peace to our macro international conflict. But peace in the Bible isn't just a global word. It's also a very personal word. Uh, when David was sent to battle uh, where Goliath was, he actually wasn't sent there to fight. He was actually sent to check on the shalom of his brothers, their well-being. And so uh, this universal wholeness, this flourishing is meant to go very deep and personal. It relates to our relationships and it ultimately relates even globally. So I find it pretty interesting to think about the word of peace because our stories, like the Bible story, is a quest for peace. It's a struggle. And your personal story it is really a, a quest for that. And, uh, and our personal stories um, are built around this, this narrative, and this narrative has this theme often in our lives, and it often shows a recurring struggle. I don't know if you noticed, but you might be keep struggling with the same thing. The circumstances may change slightly. Sometimes you think the circumstances are exactly the same, but you're worried that the struggle is going to repeat itself. And sure enough, many times you see that happen. It can come from your family. My grandparents, uh, many of you know, I've told you the story of my mom. Um, they basically, um, not intentionally, but gave her the narrative of we're rich and elite. And she grew up seeing if that theme was true. Sure enough, uh, she saw enough evidences that they were rich and they were treated special. And so it became a major theme of her life before she knew Jesus. It really became an identity uh, for her. And that struggle uh, had everything to do with gaining or losing riches or gaining or losing, losing status. Interestingly enough, like I've told many of you, during my child, we lost everything we owned. So my mom's fears came out, and then all the other family's anxiety came out, and that developed a different narrative, a different storyline in my life. You know, I kind of had this sense of I'm trapped in this family, and I got to get out of here, right? And that has recurred again and again and again in my life. It's become a recurring struggle for you for me. Um, many of you know, even in the last few months, I've dealt with my brother passing away, and there's been a lack of peace and um, relational conflict. And the word peace here, I wanted to preach on it because I really knew I needed to kind of bring to closure the last three or four months uh, on peace and, and 
spend some time in reflection on it. It's been really, really, really helpful. But as my brother died in July, um, he left his estate to me and my sisters and his girlfriend, and a big legal fight um, ensued. And I had difficulty with one of my sisters that I told you about, the one that used to own the cat. Um, and it was, it was a really tough, it was a very tough season. Um, the loss of my brother and uh, the recurring of the same kind of threats from my sister that I had when I was a child. All the fears that they just came out like, like they were um, years ago even as a child. So for, um, for you, you probably have some different per- personal themes. Um, they might be very different. If you pride yourself on being strong, then being weak, man, it just kind of, it's, it's really hard for you. It's hard for everybody, but it's really hard for you. Um, and you'll kind of notice you kind of reacting, uh, like overreacting in those times when you're super weak. And it makes sense to all of us, but then to the level that it really gets to you, that, that goes beyond what many of us would do. Um, because strength and being strong perhaps is a storyline. But on the other hand, when you have a big challenge and you overcome that challenge, there's this sense of peace of like, yes, I did it. I knew I could. Uh, for many of us, we have these different themes. Uh, it could be the storyline of you got to get it right or it's all got to be perfect, or you got to get approval, or um, have a special, or you got to have some fun. Um, Whatever it is, we all develop these themes growing up. It's like, you know, we somehow have either inherited it from our family, or through some wild success we have as a child, or perhaps a really traumatic event, we start re-looking. And there's a little bit of confirmation bias with this. We start looking for the evidence of, see there, that is a theme for me. See there, that's the way I am. See there, that's how I'm unfairly treated. See there, and we keep looking for circumstances. And sure enough, we participate in the development of our own theme and then our struggle for peace often is a struggle centered around that theme. Uh, I find funerals to be really interesting. Um, It's the rare funeral where somebody really gets into the struggle of the person, the real struggle of the person's life. And the the reason why it's rare is not just because it's polite to just only talk about the good things, but it's um, it's also because so few people really find peace in the midst of this recurring struggle in their life. It, it's, there's so little victory in that. We can look at that and say, well, let's not talk about that. We all know this was the real thing with this person's life. But then it kind of drove us crazy. But it's the rare one where it's brought up and then we appreciated the beauty that came out from the change in their life. So today I want you to think about a conflict or a recurring struggle that you've had in your life story. Okay. And as we unpack the passage today, uh, we might come back to it a few more times. I want you to think about what is that recurring struggle for you? Um, It could be a macro thing. It could be a systemic or a societal struggle. It could be very personal. Um, What's the struggle? Um, Maybe it's something you inherited from your family. Maybe it's something you've developed since childhood. 
Maybe it's something big happened in your life in recent years, or maybe you're going through it now and it's become a new theme and struggle. And I want you to, I want you to put some words to it real quick. You know, that recurring struggle in your mind. A couple of things we're going to unpack here in a minute is what, when it gets most intense, what fears come out? And when it gets most intense, where's God? Today, we're going to talk about these recurring struggles in our life and the Prince of Peace. We're going to talk about your recurring struggle. Then we're going to talk about the Prince of Peace, Jesus' work in your recurring struggle. Like, what's he really doing? And third, we're going to talk about accepting the Prince of Peace into your recurring struggle, into your story. A few years ago, I was thinking about the Bible, and I was thinking about the Gospels in particular. And I was like, why are there not more Jesus and building stories? I mean, if he was a carpenter or a stonemason, I mean, he could pick up anything and create a lesson out of it. And he certainly did. He talked about the house and the sand. He you know, talked about the cornerstone, which was kind of Old Testament. But he could have just, like, done his entire ministry like with lessons of what he did all day long. And there's very few when you think about how much of his life was built around building stuff. And then I started thinking, it's strange how many stories about boats and fishing there were. It just hit me. I was like, this just keeps happening. And I'm like, if there shouldn't be any fishing problems or boat problems, it ought to be with the disciples. I mean, Four of the 12 were professional fishermen. They knew how to handle a boat. And yet it just keeps happening. And the parts that we get aren't, you know, one of them jumped up, Peter jumped up, grabbed the oar, told them what to do. They all worked like a team and they beat their time across the Sea of Galilee. We, it's none of that. It's always a catastrophe. Uh, the thing you wouldn't expect. And then, of course, it hit me. It hit me. Jesus is entering into their story and is bringing out things that they already have a narrative about in them, in their lives. Mark 4, if you have your Bibles, you can open up them or your apps. I'll show it on the screen here too. Mark 4 is one of these moments. In early Mark 4, Jesus is coming from teaching the crowds. He's telling them these really uh, crazy parables and then he's getting his disciples and say, now here's what that really means. You know, it gives them the inside scoop. So they love it. You know, it's going well. And they all get in a boat. Jesus orders them to get in a boat. And it says here in the scripture that they took him, the Mr. Celebrity, into the boat just as he was. Let's read Mark chapter 4, 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in a boat just as he was. And the other boats were there with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So when the celebrity got in the boat, they brought him just as he was. But when the storm arose, they accused him 
and asked him if he even cared because they were dying. I remember years ago when I was at the Sea of Galilee, um, I went there on a steady trip, and one day I tried to windsurf with my Bible professor. He was just, he was really cool. Well, there was no wind. I mean, it was like flat. It was completely flat as grass, on the glass. There was just nothing. And so we, um, next day, went out to eat, and then we came back. It was real calm. And then suddenly this storm just comes through, and, um, and just this wind comes off the mountains. Um, and the, it looked like a, a baby rocking a bathtub. I mean, it was crazy uh, how much chaos was suddenly in that and so that weather was common back then and it's common today the sea of galilee could do this and um, this is one of the events that happens here in um in jesus's ministry rembrandt painted a painting called the storm on the sea of galilee we'll put it up here on the screen there's a little bit of delay by the way with our screen and image sizes in a minute if you're joining us online you want to just search Rembrandt, Storm on the Sea. Pull it up. You can really look closely at the characters. Nobody knows where this painting is, by the way. It was stolen out of a museum in Boston in 1990s. And so we can download and use this without anybody suing us, which is great. But if you're looking online and you stole these paintings, I just want to encourage you to, you know, return it. Okay? There we go. All right, now let's look at close up here. This is the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They're, these are the disciples uh, in the boat. Now, if you notice, uh, there are several people taking charge of things, and there are several people that, um, that different things are going on. Four of them were uh, fishermen, and it would make sense that probably the fishermen are the ones up top grabbing the sails and the one by the masts. Maybe the one in the far back um, that has the, um, the rudder. Uh, they were over their heads. They were trying their best. They were professionals. And they, this was, this, they were beyond it. And an ensuing panic went through the rest of the disciples because they saw if these guys can't handle it, nobody can handle it. We're going to die. One guy... If you look right below the ones on the mast, is holding on to one of the ropes. A wave is hitting him. He is hanging on for dear life. And yet about five or six feet behind him, if you see a guy, still a lot of light, he's sitting down. He's just totally given up. Uh, there's a guy in the stern. Uh, if you're, This is really tough to tell. But at the very bottom of the screen, you can see a character that's leaning over. Hey, teenagers, this is awesome when an artist put in there that he's losing his lunch. He's throwing up over the side of the boat. <laughs> you got to respect an artist that goes all in with that, right? And then you've got people that are waking up Jesus. Uh, Jesus' is face is facing this way, and you've got two gentlemen looking back. One of them is reasoning. The other one's angry with Jesus, grabbing him by the cloak. There's another one between the gentleman sitting down and the one reasoning with Jesus. He's got a Carolina blue coat on, right? And he's got his hand on his head. Guess what? That's the 14th pastor, passenger. It's 14 people in the boat here. 12 disciples, one Jesus, and Rembrandt. He painted, he painted himself in the painting. 
And he's looking at you. And he's looking at me. I don't know what he's saying, but I think he's saying, what's your reaction? Where are you? You've got all these people taking matters in their own hands, holding on for dear life, you know, struggling, uh, straining, reasoning, getting angry, losing want, giving up. In your greatest storms in life, what's your reaction? Earlier, when Jesus was a celebrity, they took him in the boat just as he was. But now they can't accept who he really is. God that's asleep. Jesus is doing really what is unacceptable. We understand when we read Genesis 1 that God needs a rest. After seven days of creation, he takes a rest. But we never understand it at our biggest time of struggle. It is unacceptable. Why? Because this is our story. This is not his story. If it's his story, he's got it. And he can take a nap whenever he wants. If it's our story, we decide if he's got it or not. The problem is whenever we assume that God's asleep in the back of the boat, our panic gets worse. Because if we can't wake God, we're all going to die. What's your reaction in your recurring narrative when it gets most intense? What fears come out? What difficulties come to the surface? And what do you think about God when he's not showing up? Most of us are too focused on our own need. We panic. We try to save ourselves. We get angry at God. But it is helpful to read the rest of the story and recognize the Prince of Peace's work in the recurring struggle. We talked about a recurring struggle. Let's talk about the Prince of Peace work in your recurring struggle. Raise your hand if you understand what in the heck I'm saying with my, with my voice. Okay. I will email you my notes later. <laughs> All right. Jesus does wake up. And this is what he does. Verse 39. And he, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus rebukes the wind, and it stops. Now, that might have been a coincidence. But the sea would have taken hours to move to calm. And just like that, the sea goes flat. He just says the word, and it's smooth as glass. And sure enough, when Jesus delivers, it's often like, Sometimes it's not. But the times when it's like that, what happens? Your jaw drops. Why? Because it doesn't fit in your narrative, in your worldview, in all the things that you've said about other people and about God. 
It doesn't fit your emotions. But that's what happens in this situation. Jesus shows his incomparable power. You need to know that the sea was a little bit the way it was treated and viewed back in that day, a little bit the way we view space. Like, it's just beyond us. Like, nobody really knows. That's the way they saw the sea. It was an uncontrollable power, and all the religions at the time had the sense that only God could really control the sea. There was a great fear with them. And then Jesus turns and asks two key questions. He said to them, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The two words that stick out to me are the words so and still. Why are you so afraid? Like you're not just afraid. You are really afraid. Why are you so afraid? It's obvious, especially in light of a completely calm sea of no wind, of perfect acoustics. Your reaction is the opposite of creation. Your story is in your heads. Jesus is asking them basically, don't you know who you have in the boat with you? I've been seeing a counselor the last couple of months because I just anticipated a really hard season and I'm glad I did. Took some time off and went ahead and just got it ahead of it on kind of counselor. And um, he kept asking me the same questions. Why do your sister's threats hurt you so much? He didn't say this, but I was like, I'm about to turn 54 years old. I don't know. I should be past this by now. Um, and that's because there is a sense of bringing me back of being trapped in pain and having to get out of here. In your recurring struggle, why are your reactions so strong? Why are, your, why is it, why are you so afraid? Whether you're not a believer or you have been one for years, this second question is also for you. Have you still no faith? If you've been a believer for years, you should know better. You believe in Jesus. You've accepted that he does miracles. You still have not. And Jesus spent a lot of time with these guys. He said, why do you still have no faith? You know, it takes a long time to replace that narrative in our head, doesn't it? And more importantly, it takes a long time to replace the unbelief with belief, with the faith in the things like we're fated to be um, put in our place, to not be special. We're fated to be weak. We're fated to deal with criticisms and accusations. That belief, that lie in your head, it takes a long time for our faith in the, in the one that defeats the father of lies to be replaced there. Um, so I want to encourage you as you go through this to just notice your reactions as you're thinking about your recurring struggle. It's a big deal. And this, this may just keep happening. He may, if you were a fisherman, he may just keep putting you in a boat. 
Because what's coming out in the sea is really the thing that's coming out of your heart so that he can then replace them with core questions. Answering these questions are not easy. You know, we're used to a speaker with a message tying everything up with a bow. I can't tie this up. These are your questions to God and God's questions to you. They're, they're personal questions. Only you can answer them in light of your story. Why are you so afraid? And how do you know faith? And I want to encourage you to chase that down. Use some friends. Talk it out with a home group. Rely on a trusted uh, person in your family to help you debrief these things. Hire a counselor. These are, these are the things that if you make progress with replacing the lies with the truth of Christ, you're going to watch what Jesus did with his disciples. Him change them from the inside out. Now, be forewarned, it often doesn't, addressing it, it doesn't just mean that all his peace comes right away. Look at verse 41. After he had asked these questions, the disciples and they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, you may have been taught that this story is about Jesus bringing perfect peace to your storms. There are other scriptures that support that. But that's not what happens here. How are the disciples fearful, more fearful, or less at the end of the story? They're more. They went from fear to great fear. But it's a different type of fear. They went from a cowardly fear to an awe, to a fear of the Lord, to a reverence, to a draw-dropping, I can't believe this is happening. This is who we really have in the boat. So this first fear, the cowardly fear, is what comes out. But that first cowardly fear needs to be replaced with worship. It needs to be replaced with seeing Jesus, not just as he was, but just as he is. It's seeing the Prince of Peace as just as he is. That is where the faith begins, the faith in the right thing. And that is when the reconstructing of the story begins. That's when the struggle starts to show signs of peace beginning. That's when it starts to show that there we are heading towards a resolution. And that resolution still may be in the future, but it's starting to show glimpses of change and growth in the character, in you. Worship transforms the struggle. It transforms the story. It gets your eyes off the raging sea and onto the Savior. That's what changes your narrative. So let's talk about accepting the Prince of Peace in the recurring struggle. We talked about the recurring struggle. We talked about his work, what he's really doing in this. And let's talk about fully accepting him just as he is. Guess what's interesting about this story? 
It's not only a recurring story in the disciples' life, it is a recurring story in the Bible. Uh, it's, in the book of Jonah, Jonah, you'll recognize many similarities and differences with this story. Okay? Now, the main difference between Jonah and Jesus is that Jonah rejected God's word and ran from God in disobedience, whereas Jesus accepted God's word and is operating in obedience to God. But the similarities between Jonah and Jesus, both are in a boat. Both are overtaken by a storm, and the description of these storms are almost identical. Both Jesus and Jonah are asleep in the storm. The sailors, the Jonah, the disciples of Jesus, they come to him and say, we're perishing, and they use the same word. In both, there's a miraculous intervention by God, and in both, the sea is immediately calmed. The last thing we read is that both groups, the sailors and the disciples, have a great or exceeding fear, which is an awe and a reverence. Fear in the Lord. There's another key difference, though. Jesus, in essence, says, if I perish, you will live. I'm sorry. Jonah tells the sailors, if I perish, you will live. And that's not so different, ultimately. Though it's not in this account of what Jesus did. Jonah says, if I perish, you will live. And Jesus basically says, I will perish so that you live. Jonah's thrown into the sea. A fish swallows him up for three days. And afterwards, he repents. He spit out. And then he goes to his mission, which is to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh, which is present-day Iraq. And the city turns to God. Jesus says in Matthew 12, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemnment, for they have repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is crucified on the cross for their sins. He dies. He is entombed for three days. He is resurrected, and he comes to preach the good news of grace. And all who repent are saved from God's judgment and given an abundant life with God forever. Now it's time for us to ask us, do we accept the prince just as he is? Even if he's asleep in the back of the boat, not acting right now, do we accept the Prince of Peace just as he is? Do you believe that someone is greater that is here? Do you believe someone greater than Jonah is here? Do you believe someone greater than your worst fears is here? Someone greater than your narrative is here? Do you believe Jesus is the true story, the true hero of your story? And if you say yes, if you say, yes, I accept the Prince of Peace, just as he is, there's one thing I want you to see will happen to you in the midst of the storm. Let's go back to the painting. There's one more thing. It's probably too difficult to see on the screens, but I'm going to still show it to you. 
You see Jesus. He's looking forward. You get to see the two men looking back at him. You see Rembrandt with his hand on his head. Uh, at the bottom, you see the guy hurling. In the middle of it, right below the two hands that are pointing towards Jesus, is a bald head. Too dark. But such the dark, it's the darkest part of the painting. There's a man kneeling. And right in front of the bald head, you could barely make it out. But there are two clasping hands. He is worshiping in the midst of the storm, in the darkest part of the painting, in the darkest part of your story. It is possible. In fact, it happens. And it is God's desire for you to worship him even in the midst of the storm. To accept the Prince of Peace just as he is. To bow to him and the peace begins regardless of the circumstances now with worship. So I ask you to accept him just as he is and allow him to change your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Thank you for loving us so much that you don't just make all of our circumstances be at peace without changing the internal struggle of our soul. Thank you so much. As we come to you in communion and remember that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave, help us come communing, knowing that you are addressing these things that have come up in us that are wrong fears, that are wrong beliefs, so that we can be filled with awe and reverence for you. Thank you so much for leading us and loving us through this so that we could one day look in the future and see you make all things new, all things at peace, that every tear and every, uh, every bit of pain will be gone as we look at you restoring all things including ourselves from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.